to be seated. I want to uh, say at the beginning that this is, at least in the middle, um, um, a description of crucifixion, which can be graphic. And so I'm trusting the parents to make a decision. There is um, a nursery downstairs, and we do have that provided. And so if you think it's best, then uh, you can do that now. It's downstairs. Miss Pinkston's there. Others are there taking care of children. Um, also, um, at any point, feel free to uh, get up. The point is not to be gory, but the point is to experience as best we can separated over 2,000 years from uh, the death of our Lord to experience some of what he ex- might have experienced, verbally experience it, though he experienced it personally and firsthand. I want to uh, bring a message called a complete sacrifice. You know, the picture of Scripture is not that there was some partial laying on Christ a burden. There was not just an attack against his person as a physical body, but there was an attack uh, completely over his emotional his physical and his spiritual being. It was, uh, in every way, it was complete. God uh, saw fit to do this, and we have benefited from it. My passages generally come from Mark 27, 26, and, I mean, excuse me, Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and following in John 18 and 19. There will be some other texts, but those will be the main places I go because this is a major event. It is covered in all the Gospels completely. Uh, Luke giving us the most detailed account of the suffering of Christ. Matthew giving us the account from human perspective, those crucifying Him. As a matter of fact, it's interesting in Matthew, the crucifixion is talked in second, uh, second hand. It's talked to a second hand from Matthew. He doesn't even say Jesus was crucified. He says the ones having crucified Jesus parted his garments and cast lots for the one that remained. He doesn't even say Jesus was crucified. He just says uh, those having crucified Christ. So, And then John gives us a very detailed account from a God's perspective, a, a divine account. Of, of Christ and God the Father and the unction, the extreme pain of it from a spiritual side. So we have a complete coverage of the, of the cross. We have physical, emotional, and spiritual. I want to start with Jesus Christ suffering extreme emotional trauma. I don't know how many of you in here might have experienced emotional trauma. Uh, I have in a few occasions experienced what i perceived to be emotional trauma. Uh, One, when someone tried to break in our house and we were there sleeping. Another, uh, when we were in a, I was in a car accident with my mother and uh, that, I was a small child, about five. That was extremely emotional um, for me and and for my um, family, I guess, uh, as best I can remember as a five-year-old. I can, I can remember an account of, uh, uh, coming up on co- in college, the emotional uh, impact of seeing a, a car accident with a friend, uh, an acquaintance, someone I knew at the college who was 
um, who was killed in the car accident, and that brought emotional trauma. But none of us have experienced the emotional trauma that Christ went through. Look in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. There'll be a lot of Scripture reading here. My purpose here is to tie together the suffering of Christ and to give a picture. So there'll be a lot of reading and a lot that you will need to uh, maybe take in your eyes, your, your mind's eye. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, last night we took Passover together. We celebrated the last meal Christ would have celebrated with His disciples. And so then immediately after that, the Bible paints the picture that they went out of the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And then that is where uh, that Christ was going to pray and be strengthened by angels, by an angel which appeared to Him there, and then also to uh, uh, agonize over um, this coming impending uh, struggle, uh, life struggle. So He has a simple command. Look at that. Simple. His disciples are there. Sit here while I go over there and pray. It's not complicated. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Have any of you made a request like that of a friend? You know, you've said, I'm in extreme turmoil over something in my life, whether it be pain, death of a relative, home troubles, work problems, whatever it is, spiritual struggle, sin, and you say, Pray with me. My soul is sorrowful. I'm hurting to the deepest core of my being. Just pray for me. Just be with me. That's what Christ is saying. He's saying He needs them to pray. He wants them to pray. And going a little farther, He fell on His face and prayed. I believe He was within earshot. They could hear Him as He fell and mourned and wept loudly to His Father. Father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So there's a deep matter being discussed. A cup that is the past, maybe. But if it's not your will, then I'll take the cup and I'll drink the cup. And here his disciples are. Just pray for me. It's a simple command. Simple request of a man who's given them three years of his life. He's ate with them. He's cried with them. He's walked with them. He's taught them. He's helped them. He's been involved in their life intimately and He asked one simple thing. Pray. Pray. Just pray. And He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Emotional trauma. He's going to face death on a cross and His closest companions don't have strength enough to stay awake. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt as if there was no one who would pray for you and be with you? Our Lord felt that emotional stress. He felt every ounce of it as His closest and most dear companions would not even stay awake. And and look at what He says. Can't you sense the pain? So, could you not watch with me one hour? Just one hour. He's not asking for an all-night prayer vigil. Just one hour. 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the second time he went and prayed and he said the same prayer. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, finding them asleep again, go ahead and sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He felt the emotional trauma of being a man with no other men that would even pray an hour, just one hour. Then he came and asked them again. They knew his soul was sorrowful. That I, I would, my mind's eye says that Jesus had never suffered this way in his life. He had never been in this mood of melancholy or distress or pain. And yet, seeing his pain, their eyes were too heavy. And they slept. And so Christ is alone. His friends are too tired to stay awake. He suffered that emotional trauma. Not only that emotional trauma, but he suffered the emotional trauma of one of his dearest friends betraying him. 47, same chapter, verse 47. While he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings. Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. One of his dearest friends, he had chosen him. There was 12. They were with him constantly, closer than anyone else on the earth. These are the men that Jesus said, You are my mothers. You are my brother if you obey me. He loved them with a love that you and I can't even imagine. And yet here comes this friend up the mountain. Not by himself, but with over 500 soldiers and clubs and swords and torches as if they came to arrest some masked murderer. Jesus had never harmed anyone. Jesus had only taught them the truth. Jesus had only laid his whole life down that they might have life. And now his friend comes. Think of the emotional. Let your mind go to the place where one of your dearest and closest friends kisses you. Notice Jesus doesn't say you're my betrayer. He says, friend, do what you came to do. Still, even in his trauma, even in his emotion, he still refers to Judas as a friend. He was... His disciples are too sleepy. His friend is kissing him and turning him over to the authorities. Look at uh, 56b. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Not only can they not stay awake, but now Jesus suffers the emotional trauma of being abandoned. Totally abandoned. They just up and left him afraid for their own necks, scared they would be the next ones who would be arrested, they flee. Get out of here. He's caught. He's trapped. 
He's arrested. He's dead anyway. Why die with him? Let's go. So they all flee him. They all leave him. But his emotional trauma is not complete. Look at 26 verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to him, the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystander came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you would deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. His closest, if there was anyone that was close to the Lord in the twelve, it was Peter. Peter was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was the one who he often discoursed with to teach the rest, the other eleven. It was Peter who had the exalted position among the disciples as the leader of the group. Jesus always, he's always listed first in the account of naming the disciples. The, all of the Gospels put Peter first, a sense of of uh, significance, prominence, leadership in the group. And here the leader of the group says three times, I don't know who he is, the last time invoking a curse from God on his own self if he's telling a lie. This is how much separation he desired from Jesus Christ. And Jesus is in a courtyard, an open place, and this rooster crows. If Peter could hear the rooster, Christ could hear the rooster, and he knew what his friend had done. And it caused him great emotional distress. I don't know if you're abandoned tonight. You may be here and have no friends in this world. You may have no one you think, but you do not suffer any more distress emotionally than our Savior suffered as He looked towards His cross. This is not to mention being beaten and spat upon by His own creation, led away like some brutal murderer when He was the Creator of the world, looking out over Jerusalem as he entered, the scores, the thousands of people that would have been in Jerusalem during Passover, and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings as a hen does her brood, but you would not come. And he wept over Jerusalem, and he hurt, and he he hated their sin, and he hated the fact that they would not believe. And this, all of this emotional stress mounting on him. Jesus suffered betrayal from his friends. He suffered emotional betrayal because he was left. He was leaving his friends. We've gone on trips. I've gone on trips. You've gone on trips. The hardest part about a trip for me is leaving my family, my friends. And Jesus, I believe, felt this distress. Look in John 17. I'll tell you why. I believe that because as Matthew says, he fell on his face and he prayed. But Matthew just says he prayed a prayer saying, if it can pass, let it pass. But if it's your will, I'll drink it. Now, John gives us the full account of the prayer. What he was on his face, looking towards the cross, knowing he would die in a matter of a few hours. He's praying for his disciples. Look what he says, Father. Verse two, uh, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son that, your, that the son may glorify you. So we see that he's asking God to be glorified and he's asking himself to be glorified. And he goes through and he says, you know, your glory I've displayed on the earth and I've shown your presence and I've, I've come and, and I've, I've existed with the world here. Now look at verse 6. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given uh, me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Isn't that amazing? If you or I were on death row, would we pray for our friends? Christ would. Even though He suffers the emotional rejection of His own friends, He prays for them. They can't stay awake to pray for Him when His soul is exceedingly sorrowful, yet He can't stop thinking of them and praying for them. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and And I am no longer in the world. You can sense the pain. But they are in the world. Separation. I'm not with them now as I was these last three years. Physically. Able to sit around a campfire. Drink a drink with them. Eat a meal with them. Discuss the truth with them. I'm with them. I'm going to be with them in the spirit. But I'm not physically with them. You can sense the ripping away. Jesus in the world with these men he loves. And now he's ripped away. And He's in heaven. And He is glorified. But oh, the reunion that must have taken place when His disciples were beheaded and crucified and boiled in oil and went to His presence. Then He's with them again. Oh, what a, what a shouting service must have occurred when these men came before Christ in the paradise that He now resides in. But the pain is there. While I was with them, I kept them in Your name which you have given me, verse 12, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But he says, I'm going to you. And so he's going to entrust them over to his father. Jesus had to leave his friends. Jesus suffered for us emotionally, you and for me. Look in verse, seven, verse 20 in chapter 17. When Jesus is praying... He doesn't stop with His disciples. He prays for us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. We're one of those. We believe through their word. And so Jesus is praying for us that they may all be one, just as You, Father, in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. This beautiful union of the church, yet is it not Christ's church which suffers more than any religion on the face of the earth? And as he goes to suffer, he knows the suffering that his church would suffer in the year 2006. And why do they suffer? Because of him. If they persecuted me, the master of the house, will they not also persecute you, the servants? And so the emotional stress of knowing this is a great thing. I am dying so that they might live, but yet they're going to suffer their whole lives because they believe in me. 
if there's anything a, a, a parent wants, and if, he could, if I could do anything, it would be to take away the pain of my own children. And so if I, as a human father, have this desire, even though I know it's best for them to suffer, even though Christ knows it's best for them to suffer, I believe emotionally this is a hard thing for Christ as a human here on the earth, struggling over facing death and knowing he's leaving his friends. He's betrayed by his friends. He's leaving his friends. He's emotional even over us. He suffers over his own mother. Look in verse chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. And Jesus looked down from the cross, and when he had seen his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Mary had nurtured him, loved him, taught him, trained him, sang with him, been close to him as he grew as a tender child. And now looking down from the cross, seeing his mother agonizing over a son that she bore, gave birth to, helped raise, saw become a great teacher, honest and just and obedient son and now bruised and battered beyond recognition she sees her son dying it's not as if she walked in some surgical room as bad as that would be or an ICU whether it's clean and pristine and there's respect being given because of death she's standing watching the horrifying mocking laughing, ridiculing, success. We, the high-fiving around the cross of the rabbis, the other rabbis, and their followers. We've done it. We've finished it. We killed him. She has to hear those things as a mother. And Christ hears those things knowing his mother is there. Oh, the emotional struggle that must be in him to know that his mother is in pain. Jesus suffered the scoffing and the ridicule of his own creation. He was mocked and ridiculed by his, the soldiers who took him before the high priest. He answered their questions and yet they slapped him for his answer. Then he was carried before Pilate. And Pilate, no backbone, no strength, saying, I find no guilt in this man, yet... Because of what he had done to Caesar, the Bible tells us because he was a threat to Caesar as the king of the Jews, Pilate willingly killed him. Peter tells us that Pilate killed him. The Jews killed him and Pilate killed him. Don't let Pilate come off Scott clean. He could have avoided it, but he wouldn't avoid it. He wanted him dead. And so he not only killed him, but he took the unusual measure of beating him scourging him, and then crucifying him. He suffered that ridicule. He suffered ridicule while on the cross of those who would mock him as they passed by. The location of Christ's death is very clear from the Scripture. I've never seen it. Many have. There is a hill outside of Jerusalem, some 650 yards from the praetorium and, and the place where he was led up to the hill. He wasn't crucified on the hill probably, but down in the, at the foot of the hill, right on the road, so that everyone who passed by that day would see his bloody, mangled, beaten, bruised body hanging. 
so that all could see the vultures and the crows gathering and swarming, knowing death was in the air, so that all could ridicule this king of the Jews. And so he suffered as his creation revolted against him and ridiculed him and scoffed at him. His mental anguish is without question because of a text that Luke writes for us. Luke was a physician, and he writes for us what only a physician would think through the power of the Holy Spirit to record. Luke twenty-two forty-four, a very significant fact no one else includes. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, his emotional trauma is so great. Listen to what happened. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a medical fact that Luke is recording for us. Under extreme duress, under extreme emotional pain, the capillaries around the sweat glands burst, and a person begins to sweat blood. Literally, sweat becomes blood there. And so Luke tells us that this anguish is so great that this rare occurrence happens on our Lord. So he has suffered Emotional trauma. Jesus Christ suffered the most extreme and complete physical trauma known to man. I want to give you the account. I've received this account from a medical student who was writing a paper, a physiologist, uh, however you say that, I'm not a medical guy, Uh, but he was studying to be a biochemist. And he wanted to understand the crucifixion of the Lord. We said he was scourged. This is the account of a scourging. Scourging was a long process of whipping where the victim's clothes were torn off. Then his hands were tied to a pike above his head. Most uh, commentators insert that the Jews had a law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. However, it was the Romans who inflicted the punishment, and they had no regard to Jewish law. The Bible, in other words, is not clear about how many lashes he received. Just that he received lashes from the Romans, they weren't bound by Jewish law. We don't know. Maybe 39, maybe more. They did as they saw fit. Our Lord Jesus Christ Savior of our souls was brutally whipped with a cattail, which was a short whip of several heavy tentacles where the ends were tied with small balls of lead, rocks, or bone fragments. At first, the whipping action would pound the shoulders, the back, and legs as a butcher would tenderize a piece of meat. It produced deep, large, painful bruises, intense pain, and appreciable blood loss from another form of, uh, of, of bursting of capillaries and most probably would have left Jesus in a pre-shock state. As the whipping action continued, it would cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissue, thus producing a discharge of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin and then causing stripe-like lacerations, finally spurting arterial bleeding from larger vessels in the underlying muscle This action literally tears the flesh off his back, exposing the muscles and maybe even bone. 
The flesh from the back would hang in ribbons. It would be like a mass of torn, bleeding muscle. The person doing this torture was a trained centurion, and when the victim was near death, the beating would be stopped. They were also careful not to puncture a lung, as that would have killed the victim and ended an intended prolonged agony. Their desire was not to kill Jesus Christ. Their desire, and the desire even of God the Father, was that all of God's wrath be poured out on Him. So, Jesus, beaten and bruised, lays at the feet of a Roman soldier who then places his torn clothes back on him, picked up the cross beam, tied his arms across his shoulders, and by now he's in excruciating pain and perhaps still drifting in and out of consciousness as he not only had received no sleep for over 24 hours, but also had been subjected to constant torment and torture along with mental and spiritual exhaustion. He was led in the procession carrying the heavy uh, crossbar which weighed a hundred pounds. Weighed a hundred pounds. Maybe even with his two thieves that would be with him. This is called the journey along the Via Della Rosa, meaning the way of suffering. Jesus would have continued to bleed because of the pressure from the weight of the rough wood of the heavy crossbeam going into the, what remained of his skin, causing lacerations in the skin and muscles of the shoulders and more copious blood loss. Thus his muscles were pushed beyond their endurance into shock. He then stumbled and fell under this agony in spite of his effort to walk straight. The centurion who was perhaps anxious to get on with the crucifixion, enlisted someone's help. And we're recorded that by the Scripture in Luke 23, 26, which says Simon carried his cross. Jesus was unable to bear the load of the cross beam. His body was at this time, if not before, having have been going through a state of severe trauma and shock. Keep in mind, he was a man's man, very fit as a carpenter in a time of no power tools and was always walking. He would have been in top-notch physical condition. He was not a wimp or weakling, yet he could not carry his own cross. He continued up the 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha, the place of a skull where the cross lay. He literally went to the cross by following the cross, the young man says in his paper. He was still in a state of shock, bleeding, sweating, and experiencing chills from trauma. He was then nailed onto the cross beam through his wrist with large, heavy, square, wrought iron nails approximately five to seven inches long with a square shaft three-eighths of an inch across the size of railroad spikes. These spikes are what were driven through the body and deep into the wood of the cross. Several soldiers using large wooden forks, ladders, or ropes lifted him up. The sensation and pain of these spikes being driven through would have been indescribable. The soldiers would have been careful not to pull the arms tightly, but allow them some movement. This would have caused even more trauma while his shoulders were quickly thrown backward against the hard wooden cross as he was lifted up. 
crossbeam was placed in the notch and tied. His left foot was pressed backward against a block used as a sadistic foot transfixion rest, a Roman improvement to prolong the crucifixion. I told you, their desire was not to kill him. Their desire was that he suffer immeasurable pain. Then with his feet on top of each other, his knees extended and his toes facing down, they were nailed through the arches of his feet into the bottom block with one nail spike. The knees were left bent so they could flex. Jesus was then offered wine vinegar mixed with myrrh. It was an act of compassion by a soldier as it offered a mild anesthesia. Or it could have been due to further sadistic prowess so as to increase the length of the stay on the cross by making the person in a stupor. Jesus would not drink it. He cut it short. Lastly, they placed a mocking sign over his head to complete their torture, calling him Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This was his charge. This was his only fault, the truth. I am the king of the Jews. Not only was he the king of the Jews, he was the king of those Roman soldiers who were nailing him to a cross and the king of any Caesar in Rome. As our Lord hung on the cross, he would have struggled to lift his body trying to breathe. He would have had to do this for each breath, pulling himself up and down against the nails that are in his hands and his feet. Without doing this, air could not get into the lungs, nor could it be exhaled. This would have caused uh, an injury on the ligaments while placing pressure on the median nerves, causing extreme searing, excruciating pain, shooting along the fingers and up the arms to the brain and back. This was in addition to the deep, relentless, throbbing pain and agony of the nails tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet and the, and the, between the radius and ulna and the carpals in the forearms and wrists. The death of crucifixion is not by the trauma of blood loss. It is by the suffocation due to the body in shock, unable to move, to prop itself up to breathe. Jesus would have been pushing himself upward to avoid the pain and lowering himself to take a breath. His pectoral muscles would have been paralyzed and the intercoastal muscles unable to act. Virtually every muscle in his body would have begun to cramp and fatigue until he was able to push himself upward. Toward the end, he would only be able to get one short breath at a time. Carbon dioxide would build up in the lungs, forcing his body to convulse to try to get more oxygen. During this period, our Lord had sympathy on soldiers, saying, Father, forgive them for they... Know not what they do. Jesus told the thief, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. These are the statements of a man, a God, hanging on the cross, forgiving people when he can only draw one breath at a time, and he's literally suffering through suffocation. And yet he musters the strength to forgive a man and to forgive soldiers who don't even ask. This is our Lord. It's almost over. He has dreadful, crushing pain deep in his chest. He sees that his heart, or his heart would have been racing by this point and being squeezed by the muscles, the sack 
around his heart. As it struggles against being compressed, it tries to pump the thick and sluggish coagulated blood into his tissues. His distressed lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in oxygen. His body is very dehydrated as it has lost most of its vital fluids. Jesus is code blue, critical beyond critical. Then Jesus gasps one last time to say, I thirst. He needed to make a proclamation, a statement of triumph. And so he asked that his mouth be wet. And he cries out, it is finished. Because it was nearing the Passover, the soldiers began to break the legs of the thieves to expedite their deaths. But when the soldiers came to Jesus, they saw he was dead. This is in fulfillment that his bones would not be broken and that he would give up his own life. No one would force it from him. He would give it up. Jesus, we're not sure why he dies. That's tough to figure out because there's so many ways a man can die on a cross. But one medical doctor in the cardiac field says he is convinced, he's a believer, that he did not die from anything less than a broken heart. That the pressure on his heart would have eventually caused it to explode. And so our Lord died broken in the heart. Possibly because of our sin and his separation. Jesus suffered emotional trauma. He suffered extreme physical trauma. But more than anything else, Jesus Christ suffered a spiritual trauma. More than his death physically and more than his agony mentally was his spiritual struggle. Jesus suffered the complete wrath of Almighty God that's recorded for us in Isaiah 53. And there, let, that, there's no doubt in my mind that he received all of God's wrath. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Not, first of all, by Roman soldiers or Jewish rabbis or by those who were in the employment of Caesar. He was smitten and beaten by God. Afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes from the flogging, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that stands before its shears silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I want you to understand, he didn't die because people took his life. He died because his father commanded it. 
He was obedient and he offered his life. He has put him to grief. He's made him sick. That's the literal of the Hebrew. He's put him to sickness. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the account of Jesus suffering the separation and the agony from his father. There are some key things there. But one thing I want you to see is how many times he says it was for us. Jesus died for his father. And he died for us. He died because his father desired his wrath satisfied, first of all. And he died for those whom he would save also. And so it's correct to say that it was our sin that was laid on him. If you're a believer today, your sin is what put him on the cross You and I are the reason that he suffered the lashes and was nailed to a tree and offered up his spirit. We are. Jesus suffered the complete wrath of God. Jesus suffered separation from angels in heaven. This seems minor to us, but all of his life he had the ready call of angels. I mean, they came to him in his desert temptation. They came to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now they cannot come. He's forsaken by all of heaven. I don't pretend to understand that because I've never had angels attend to me that I know of. I'm sure I have, but I don't know it. But he knew it, and yet he was separated from his father, separated from the angels. He suffered separation from his father as recorded in Matthew 27. And we must understand this to understand his crucifixion. Because his separation, I've heard it argued, he wasn't separated. I don't know how else to make sense of his words here except that he be separated. And I'll show how I believe he was separated. 27, 45 and through 40. Um, through 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that God, that Jesus ceased to be God on the cross. Jesus is the God-man. But because of sin, there is a barrier to His Father. At this moment, when all of our sin is poured on Him, He cannot feel His Father. He cannot speak and commune with His Father the way He has from eternity past. John 1.1 says, What a fitting way 
for John to describe this. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that word with means they were face to face. They looked as if into a mirror. They were in the closest of relationships. And yet now, on the cross, suffering, beaten, battered, mangled beyond recognition, His most painful thing is that He can't sense His Father. His Father didn't turn away from Him. But because of our sin, there is a barrier. And I tell you tonight, if you're here bearing your sin, God has not turned away from you, but there is a barrier that you cannot overcome. And that barrier is your sin. And if you choose to bear your sin all of your life and die in your sin, you will face the wrath of God that Jesus faced for a moment, you will face for an eternity. Understand that. He has borne the sins of those who believe and He has paid the price for those who are in Him. But if you are not in Him, your price is not paid. And you cannot pay it because you have offended an eternally righteous God. You will pay an eternally wrathful price in hell where the worm does not die and where the gnashing of teeth does not cease and where they roll again and again, begging, pleading for mercy. And there can be no mercy found there. I tell you, if God will not have mercy on His Son on the cross, He will not have mercy on you if you die in your sins. Jesus suffered separation from God the Father. Jesus suffered all this that is necessary to atone for His people. John 19.30, He says, It is finished. The sacrifice is complete. And Hebrews gives us a fitting account. Hebrews 10, 10-18. And by that will we have, uh, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until, the, until his enemies should make, be made his footstool. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. He has completely paid the price for the sin of the believer. And those who are in Him are completely free. We've meditated on the emotional trauma. We've meditated on His physical trauma. 
And it all falls in comparison to his spiritual suffering. We spend more time on the physical and emotional because we are unable really to put into words or to explain what we've never experienced. His spiritual trauma is beyond our explanation. I don't know what it is to suffer that separation. And I don't know what it is to be perfect and to feel sin for the first time. I have no clue. So I don't mean to gloss over his spiritual suffering, but I really am at a loss because it's unexplainable, really, in human terms. I want to end by saying this. We celebrated Passover where freedom was the theme. He has set you free. Not only did he set his people Israel physically free, but those who are his children spiritually, he set you free. He is your Passover lamb. And we've seen him as the Passover lamb. Much more brutal was his death than a Passover lamb because a Passover lamb was slit and died, bled to death there immediately, within moments, few, few, maybe a minute and a half, two minutes. Jesus' torment lasted over 24 hours. And so we have, figuring in from his Gethsemane struggles all the way through to his death, this painful, extremely brutal death. And if we left it there, we would find God to be sadistic. If this was the end of the story, God would be a murderer. But Sunday, we will conclude the story. Sunday, we will celebrate not a dead king, but a risen Lord. And we'll complete it, the whole picture. Passover, crucifixion, Easter morning. Let's pray. Father, it is.